Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information and to donate online, go to 3cr.org.au. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Not just our biological selves, but that spirit that, um, that inhabited this planet for those tens of thousands. Should I get it? 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Nicely done. <laughs> Much better than last time. Oh my goodness. Good morning. Good morning. Apologies for the... Um, tech issues that occurred just before our show. If anybody's been listening for the past five minutes, um, something happened with the end of the radioactive show. Mm. So you are now listening to Tuesday Breakfast, um, but you can listen back to the radioactive show online. <laughs> yes. And you're here with Lauren, Anya, myself, George, and we also have the pleasure of having Jamie in the studio with us today as well. Hi, hello. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to week four of summer school. Yes, yeah. Mm. Four weeks. Yeah, and Mm. two more to go after this. Today's episode is on sexuality and gender. Mm. Mm -hmm. But maybe before we do that, let's just um, debrief about the weekend, maybe, very quickly. Let's start with the good news. Mm. George? What is the good news? That Sally Goldner... Oh, the good news, yes. (laughs) (laughs) I was thinking about the other thing. Yes. Mm. Our favourite at Tuesday Breakfast yeah. has um, been, I don't know, how, I don't know how you describe is it she's awarded? Been awarded an Order mm. of Australia medal. Yeah. For her service very exciting. LGBTQIA plus yeah. community. Mm. Very, very exciting. So well deserved. Congratulations, yeah. Sally. Yes. Yeah. I think most people at 3CR know her and know the work that she does and how important she is in the community, but to get that kind of acknowledgement mm. is pretty mm. amazing. I was very amazed as well that it happened under a coalition government that has you know not really been silent about their hatred of the lgbta mm-hmm. community so True. but i very well deserved mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. yeah um and what else happened on the weekend that you wanted to debrief about so the invasion day march and mm-hmm. the and the protest happened in melbourne mm-hmm. in nam um we were all there jamie you were there as well and tens of thousands of people took to the streets and it was it was incredible, mm. and it just—it really looked like someone. Someone talked about it on Twitter, like how the tide was turning because there were so few people, even compared to last year, who was posting stuff about, you know, um, quote unquote Australia Day, uh, or being public about about that. Which really looks like, yeah, that more people are coming on board to understand and recognise why the 26th of January is such a harmful date and, and, you know, changing the date or abolishing the date altogether, that people are coming over to this side, the right side, if you will. Um, <laughs> so I just it, um, to, mm. it made me think, remember 
a few months ago, um, we talked about some research on air that said that 25% is the tipping mm, point. The right? tipping so point. 25% yeah. of the group of people need yeah. to be convinced of something before change occurs. Mm. And I was looking around us on Sunday and I thought, you know, yes, there are lots of people who aren't here, but I wonder if we're approaching that 25%. Yeah, um, and not just in Melbourne, in other states, mm. in Australia. Well, I think that was a really large turnout, which is very encouraging and positive. And was it Gary Foley who said, you know, not to be too self-satisfied, yeah. uh, non-Indigenous Australians? And um, was it, I think, I'm not sure if it was also him who said this, but if everyone goes and talks to 10 people, like everyone that was at that protest goes and informs 10 people that might not know about the issue mm. next year, it's going to be you know, mm. even bigger. And I thought that was like a good kind of way of thinking about it. Um, just kind of, Yeah, leaving and reflecting on what can be done kind of in the future. Yeah. Mm. So big shout out to Warriors of the Aboriginal yeah, Resistance for putting it all together. Mm-hmm. And um, um, the black women, really, that yeah. did it. That's, that's who is Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance. Mm. And, and we hope yeah. you're all taking care of yourself and resting up. Um, so, today's episode. Yes. What are we doing? So, on gender and sexuality. So, we'll mm-hmm. first be speaking with Jamie, who's in the studio with us, kind of doing a little bit of like a crash course in queer, queer terminology and queer experiences, and also looking at the intersections between uh, queer identity and racial and cultural identities. Mm. Then after that, we've got Claire Coleman, author of the award-winning book Terra Nullius, who's going to be talking about queer representation in literature. And then we have... And then Ruj Ahmedi is coming in to talk about... Um, sorry, I have not had a coffee yet, listeners. Um, <laughs> lots of things, but we are going to kick it to a song and we'll be right back. Beautiful. So this is from Mojo Juju and it's called They Come and They Go. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. It's episode four, episode four of our summer school special, and this week we're looking at gender and sexuality. So let's kick it to our first interview with Jamie. Jamie is a trans man who worked as a migration professional by day and works at becoming a professional writer by night. He moved to Australia from Singapore in 2010, and Jamie has previously volunteered for LGBTIQA plus organisations like Out for Australia, and is on the lookout for more opportunities to serve the trans community. Thank you so much for joining us today. So, we'll ease in with an opener. Can we go through the terms in the LGBTIQA plus acronym? Yeah, sure. So, uh, L stands for lesbian, G for gay... B for bisexual, T for transgender, I for intersex, intersex people, Q for queer, A for asexual, N plus for um, just catch-all term for anyone who doesn't um, identify as being straight or cis. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so I guess in that there's a, you know, I guess there's a lot of identities there um, that kind of cross over gender gender identities and also identities concerning sexualities. And it kind of seems like often... Um, from the non-queer community, there can be confusion around that. Like, mm-hmm. what are the, what these different identities mean? Is that something that you've also noticed? Yes, definitely. Um, before I go into that, mm-hmm. I just want to mention: Have you heard of quilt bag? 
That sounds familiar. What is that? Yeah. Is that the other mixing of the... It yeah. yeah. So it's basically LGBTIQA+, mm-hmm. but I think it's a much easier um, acronym for someone who's mm. not familiar with the terms to understand, because it's, it's, a, it's a word, quilt bag. Yep. So <laughs> it's a funny word yeah, as well. So we, I can go through it quickly. So Q for queer. Mm-hmm. Uh, U, it kind of stands, uh, stands in for plus, so it's undefined or undecided. Uh, I, intersex, L, lesbian, T, transgender, B, bisexual, A, asexual, and G, gay. So if you can remember LGBTIQA+, just say quilt bag. <laughs> and I, I think it's That's actually, great yeah, advice. I, yep. think it's, uh, I think it's really helpful. Yeah, because the acronym as it stands is quite, it's quite a clunky, clunky one. Even I, like, I say it all the time and I sometimes stumble over myself when I'm saying it. So that, yeah, that's really good. Um, and so do you think that, yeah, coming back to that question from before, do you think sometimes there is a uh, sort of lack of understanding of some of the identities uh, within the community? Uh, yes, definitely. Um, I mean, I think we definitely see less representation and less discussion of certain identities, like intersex people or, or asexual people. Um, definitely some identities are a bit more uh, represented in the media. So lesbian and gay men, uh, yeah, lesbians and gay men. Mm. Um, I, I do see an increase in uh, trans visibility, so that's good. But uh, we, we do need it more representation of other members of the community. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that 100%. And so where do you think some of the gaps are in terms of people's understandings of queer identities and experiences beyond just being aware of what some of those identities are? Um, a gap. I think perhaps, I mean, we always talk about gender and sexuality being on a sliding scale. Um, but I think it's not just in terms of um, different people being on different, on, on diff- a different part of the scale, but a person in their lifetime can also exist on um, different parts of this of that scale mm. and as a trans person I feel like I have really experienced that myself from first uh, thinking of myself or identifying as lesbian and and then recognizing my trans identity so to a certain extent I, I, and I don't even know if, if I identify now in terms of my sexuality as bisexual or straight now that if I identify as a man who likes women um, and and I, re- I realize that I have moved on the scale and I think everyone should be comfortable to, to realize that they are not stuck with a particular identity at any point in their lives. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a really apt description. I think a lot of trans and queer people talk about that kind of need to reach a destination. And like that, you're, if if you're trans, then you're transitioning to a destination point where then you become this person. Yes. Whereas some people might just feel com- you might just want to stay within you know two different spaces in the way that other people might read them. Yeah. Um, and that that's you know, like any way that you want to be is fine. But there are those expectations you know from other people or like what what are you what are you doing? Who are you? Like identify yourself and that kind yes. of thing. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, I think especially since I started transitioning, I think maybe pre-transition, because you think you have a goal, you think you're at one point, and then you think I have to get somewhere. But since starting transitioning, I've thought, actually, I really like this. I kind of just like being in the middle Mm. somewhere. I kind of like being undefined. And I think it's actually the the power of being able to, to transition. 
that I could that I could choose that I could then make that choice and then do it gave also gave me the the strength to think I'm happy with being kind of in the middle instead of thinking I have to uh, I need to to satisfy something or someone and pick a side now that I have been given that power to to make a choice I'm also I also feel more confident to say I'm happy just to be where I am mm. wherever that is yeah which is really cool because I guess there are, I guess there are a lot of trans and queer pe- people that might be feeling that they have to make these choices based on other people's opinions and then yes. being able to go, no, this is what I want and I'm going to do it is, is such an empowering thing. Yeah. Can we also talk about ideas around privilege, which I know is often something that uh, I think people that aren't from a particular group or community might not have as much of an understanding of. Mm-hmm. Um, what sort of privileges do you think or lack of privileges maybe queer people um, experience in their day-to-day lives? Um, yeah, so I, well, in terms of being trans, I guess I can talk about cis privilege. So it's, um, cis people are people who identify with um, natural organs that they were born with. So if you're a cis man, you were born um, with, with a penis and you, you identify as being male. And the same applies to, to cis women. Um, so I guess cis privilege is be, being comfortable and happy with the body that you were born with, and it sounds it sounds very banal and very inane because it it won't even occur to most cis people that they can be unhappy with their bodies, mm-hmm. and a trans person experiences that every day of their lives, um, even after they have gone um, through sexual confirmation surgery. It, it's still something you had to do to yourself, and you may not be very satisfied with the results, and I. I do think this is something that a cis person can firstly never understand, but even though they can't understand, I think they should still be aware that um, this privilege does exist uh, to to be able to move confidently throughout your whole life in the physical form that you have it's I can't imagine how incredible that must feel so it's it's something that I think cis people need to be aware of. Yeah, yeah, and that's very true. And I guess it doesn't seem like there is a lot of understanding in that regard mm-hmm. about about trans experiences and what it and what it means to live in a trans body and transitioning and all of those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And what are, are there any other privileges that you think are sort of relevant in this discussion? Maybe in terms, of, uh, I always think in terms of mm-hmm. administrative matters, um, things like when you're going through uh, when you're say um, in a certain point of your transition and you, you, you don't really, your look doesn't really fall into either of the, the gender binaries and you're going through the airport and you look a certain way and your passport says something. It's terrifying, it's absolutely terrifying to be a trans person in that situation. Mm-hmm. You don't know how you're going to be treated, you don't know if you're going to be dragged aside and if you're going to get funny looks and of course travel is itself very stressful and yeah, I think yeah. yeah, it's it's something that is constantly on my mind, and um, I think lots of people have the privilege not to think about that. Yeah, and I guess even if n- nothing happens, you're still wondering if something is going to happen, that's if someone right. is going to ask something, if someone's going to look a particular way, yeah. and having, I think that's something that a lot of trans people talk about, like having to negotiate all of these things in the world where they're having to worry about other people's sort of, you know, 
bigoted views or the way that they might see them and just having to kind of navigate that as something that can be really tiring and taxing. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And what about... Oh, the other question around privilege I was thinking was concerning maybe feeling excluded from uh, straight and cis spaces or in issues to do with workplaces and family. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's still quite a sort of prominent thing for trans people or queer people more generally? Yeah, definitely. I I personally am very lucky. Um, When I came out as trans to my family, my whole extended family was completely accepting and so was my workplace. Um, But I do know that certain people don't have that privilege and I I recognize that I'm very very privileged in that respect Um, so some people are afraid of coming out at the workplace especially if they're in a a customer service kind of role and even if their their colleagues are accepting what about every single customer that walks through the door you you can't you you don't know how you're going to be treated by the next person Hmm. that's incredibly stressful um, and in terms of family, I do know of people who, who have moved out of home. Um, and to, to be, especially if you if you are in a state, if you are transitioning, and you need some kinds of medical care, uh, you need to be in a certain place for, for certain documents to come to you. That that can be incredibly hard as well. Mm. Yeah, we might actually go to a couple of ads and then maybe come back and and have a bit more of a chat. Most LGBTIQ people experience positive, intimate and family relationships. However, like cisgendered heterosexual people, some LGBTIQ people experience abuse and violence in their relationships. With Respect is a new family violence service for LGBTIQ plus Victorians, providing counselling and recovery programs for victims and survivors of family violence and help for people using violence who want to stop. With Respect is a partnership between Queer Space Thorn Harbour Health, Switchboard Victoria, Transgender Victoria. For more information, visit withrespect.org.au or call 1800 542 847. With Respect is not a crisis service. If you need immediate help, call 000. A 3CR supporter. Hi, I'm Maurice. And I'm Mario. And we're Chronically, Chronically Chilled. Chilled, a program that aims to provide a platform to those living with chronic and invisible illness as well as exploring topics that impact on our daily lives. Listen to Chronically Chilled, the first Wednesday of every month at 6pm. My name is Ruby Sesenmouth. My pronouns are they. You're listening and to 3CR Radical Radio, and that was Binde with Stella, Rosie and Claudia on... Hello, I'm Liz Wright. Welcome to Are You Looking Me? and International Day for People with Disability. Today on the show, we meet Trish Maloney and Frank Horventi, who are some of the elders. Did you miss our 12-hour special broadcast for International Day of People with a Disability? Radical Disabled programmers discuss the NDIS, Aboriginal rights, creativity, youth access, financial security, parenting, LGBTIQ, intersections and so much more. Head to 3cr.org.au forward slash disability day 2018 and listen back anytime. 
You're listening to Tuesday Brekkie. It's our summer school series, episode four on gender and sexuality. And we're speaking with Jamie at the moment. Jamie is a trans man who works in queer spaces such as Out for Australia um, and is also a writer by night. And we are wanting to now talk a little bit about racial and cultural identities as well as being trans. And so you previously lived in Singapore, Singapore before coming here. How has your identity and your lived experience been shaped by your racial and cultural background alongside your trans identity? Uh, yep, so I'm originally from Singapore. Uh, I'm ethnically Chinese. Uh, I think my race has definitely helped uh, in terms of my transition in the sense because I'm transitioning from female to male and my family has been very accepting of that. But I also, to a certain extent, recognise that if I was a Chinese person transitioning from male to female, that might be a whole other kettle of fish. Um, so I, I'm lucky, again, in that respect. Um, but so certain certain aspects of Chinese culture that are more patriarchal and the favouritism and the or preference for sons, um, it's I know it has impacted my experience as a trans person. I've benefited from it. Um, but I definitely think there's still work to be done um, in terms of the acceptance of um, MTF people, mm. both in the Chinese community and more generally. Yeah. And I think this maybe was something that we spoke about with you um, for Tido, mm-hmm. but um, I was wondering if you could elaborate on the sort of the, the differences maybe living there and then having grown up there and then coming here in terms of people's understandings of queerness and trans identities. Yeah. Uh, so Singapore is a lot less accepting uh, of, of queer people and there's a lot less understanding as well of um, what it means to, to be a member of the queer community. So actually coming to Australia, it was, it was like a breath of fresh air. Mm. Um, definitely a lot more people understand here. When you use a term, you say, I'm queer, I'm trans, they, they, they get what you're talking about. It's not so much the same in Singapore. And growing up, um, they definitely was a lot of uh, trans, uh, there was a lot of treatment of trans people as jokes. Uh, there, there is quite a, a, a famous um, comedy in Singapore where uh, the, the ugliness of a trans woman supposedly was, was made the butt of the joke and, and that person became famous for being Singapore's ugliest woman. Mm, it was, it was, that's horrible. Yeah, it was absolutely horrible. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, having grown up with, with that um, I think that that did stop my understanding, my, or rather it did prevent me from truly coming to terms with my trans identity for a while. But since coming to Australia and, and uh, living with out and proud people, that has helped me to come to terms with who I am. Mm-hmm. And so finding communities here. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And so maybe we could end by kind of talking a little bit about allyship um, for any listeners who are sort of, you know, hearing what you're talking about and kind of wanting to know how they can support um, people in their own communities. Um, and maybe also linking to what we were discussing earlier around some of the issues that uh, queer people and particularly trans people face in works, workspaces and families and those little kinds of sort of aggressions that people have to deal with. Mm. Do you have any suggestions on if, if people want to be supportive, what they might be able to do? Uh, yeah, so I think you should treat every trans person as an individual and find out from them what 
they want or, or what they would prefer. So, for example, pronouns, you can ask someone for their pronouns if they would prefer he or she or they. And um, I guess one example I can give of that is that I personally don't care what pronouns people use on me. And uh, that actually is a bit funny, but I realize that saying that actually makes uh, some of my cis friends more uncomfortable because they really, really want to use the right pronouns. So yeah. when I say, I don't care, use whatever pronouns, and, and I can see like the shock on their faces, like, ah, oh, what am I going to say now? <laughs> yeah. So, but, but I think that, that just highlights that every trans person is different. So some trans people feel very, very dysphoric when they are misgendered, but I don't really care. Like I said, I'm very happy to be kind of in the middle, not just, you know, kind of floating along, not falling into a binary. So I'm happy when anyone uses whatever. Um, but someone, another trans person might not have that experience and they really want you to use the pronoun that they prefer. Mm-hmm. So I think on my point is that every trans person is different. In the same way that you, you know, you, would, you wouldn't assume uh, anything of anyone else. Uh, you would treat every person according to their likes and dislikes. Um, the trans person would have their likes and dislikes in terms of their transition or their identity as well. Uh, so find out what that is from each person. I think that's a really good note to end on. Thank you so much, Jamie. Thank you, George. We appreciate like you having all the people coming and visit us and doing stuff like this, you know. It's very good. It keeps a positive mindset in our mind, you know, and we really appreciate it. Because of where we can, yeah. I wanna be a better, better man, yeah. Because of where we can. Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison project, giving voice to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates across Victoria. You can listen to audio from this year and previous years online anytime. How do you rehabilitate someone? They just put you in a cell and tell you this is how long you're going to do and it's meant to rehabilitate you, you know. Rehabilitation starts when you get out. That's when your life begins again, doesn't it? In here, your life's on hold. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. Or if you'd like us to post you a free CD, contact the station on 03 when I first come to this jail, it was about 10 years ago, and I was a young one. I whole week for young ones come off the truck there the other day, and they called me Auntie Marlene, so it helped me recognise and realise that I pulled myself up like they are. They're starting to look up to me, so I've got to represent and do the right thing now. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR with Lauren, George and myself, Anya. Next up, we have a song for you um, by one of our Tuesday Breakfast favourites who the door is always open to. This is Make Me Feel by Janelle Monet. Yeah. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on VCR with Lauren, George and myself, Anya. In the studio now, we're very, very excited to have Claire Coleman. 
Claire Coleman is a writer from Western Australia, identifies with the South Coast Noongar people, her family associated with the area around Ravensthorpe and Hopeton. Claire grew up in a forestry settlement in the middle of a tree plantation where her dad worked, not far out of Perth. She wrote her black and white fellowship winning book Terra Nullius while travelling around Australia in a caravan, also writing it on an iPad I hear. The Old Lie is her second novel publishing in September, which we will talk about a little bit. Thank you so much for joining us today, Claire. Absolutely no worries. I love the radio. That's great. (laughs) (laughs) We love having you on radio. Um, So because today we're talking about sexuality and gender identity, maybe let's start about uh, start with talking about what queerness as a term means to you or doesn't mean to you and how that fits in with your other parts of your identity. Well, um, obviously, when it comes to intersectional bingo, I, I do quite well. Mm. Being um, um, a queer Aboriginal woman, I, I do quite well. Mm-hmm. Um, essentially, um, within my identity, I identify as, I suppose, Aboriginal first, woman second, queer third. Mm. So it's an important part of my identity, but certainly not the main part of my identity. But, of course, they're all important. And I think there's very it's very difficult to think of someone in a worse position in our society than a, a queer woman of colour. So, mm-hmm. And, of course, Aboriginal women suffer even worse than... than um, women of colour from other backgrounds. So, it's, yeah, it's quite rough, but mm. I can't change my identity very easily, so mm. I think I just have to put up with it. Yeah. that. Um, so I did some research yesterday uh, going through all your old tweets from 2016. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Stalker. And <laughs> there was one particular tweet where you talk about the ladder um, yes. and how you're at the bottom of the ladder and you're not interested in climbing the ladder but destroying the yep. ladder completely. Can you maybe talk a little bit about that? Sure. Well, the, the metaphor I use is um, position our society could be seen as a ladder. There's people at the bottom of the ladder, people at the top. Obviously, straight cis white men are up the top of the ladder. Mm. Straight cis white old rich men are really at the top. Mm. Uh, and, of course, uh, queer... In, in Australia, queer Aboriginal women are right down to the bottom. The mm. only way to be lower probably is to be, a f- um, to be living with a physical disability. It's mm. the only way to be even lower on the ladder. Mm. So luckily I, can, I, I don't have a physical disability. But um, if you think about that ladder, people have always seen diversity politics or seen, particularly the, the right wing or the people with privilege, see diversity politics of people trying to climb the ladder over them, mm. put themselves high and, pu- and push people down. Mm. Even someone I spoke to online soon after my statement said that they always saw it as as lifting other people up onto the ladder with them. Mm. And the idea of just completely destroying the ladder and there being no um, ladder for where people start as far as um, you know, economic wealth, privilege, ability to get a job, education. If there was no ladder, where, if everyone started at the bottom of the ladder mm. or there's no ladder at all, then we'd have a more equal society. We wouldn't have to worry about who we're dragging up with us or dragging down or who mm. we have to destroy to get higher. I don't yeah. want to destroy anyone. I just don't want... I don't want to be... I don't. It's like people always say they don't want anyone above them in the ladder. Well, I don't either. But why is there a ladder at all? Mm. Amen. Um, let's talk about your book, Terra Nullius. The team here love love your book, as do thousands of people nationally and internationally. Did you anticipate the sort of response that it generated? Absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I wrote it because I had a story and I wanted to tell that story. I didn't expect to get published. Mm. I didn't expect to win 
the black and white prize I won. I didn't expect to get um, picked up by my publisher like less than I think it was nine months into my editing with the black and white project. I got picked up. Mm-hmm. Um, neither I nor they expected to sell that many copies. I certainly didn't expect for it to become well so known. Mm. I could not have. When I started writing that novel in only 2015, I've expected what would happen by now. It just, it's nuts. It's mm. still nuts. Yeah, and it's and a great book. Can you talk to us about other works on the way? Sure. Well, in June, there's a, uh, a queer love Osbaye anthology called Kindred coming out with Walker Books, and mm. I've got a story in that. Mm. And that's, of course, uh, 12, or I could say 11 fantastic queer authors and me, if I've been too humble, but <laughs> it's um it's a mix of people who have never published before, people who have um, published in YA before, people who have published in literature but not yet in YA, mm. and it's a great list of people, and I think it's going to be really good, and I can't wait to, until it comes out. I can't wait to read everyone else's stories. I haven't read any of them yet. That's kind of weird. I'm in a book that I've only read my own story in it. Mm. And I've also got, well, of course, my second novel, novel The Old Lies, due out soon. And that has um, the two of the, there's three kind of core characters in it. And of those three, um, well, there's there's three core women. There's several characters, but there's three core women who are friends. And of those three, two of them are, are lesbians. Amazing. So, mm. um, and one of them is a black lesbian. Mm. So that's a... Uh, um, that's, I think that's important because in our society, not only are queer characters in, in um, speculative fiction rare, mm. but um, black um, queer characters are almost non-existent. Mm. I, mean, I, th- I think of things like Star Trek, and I always say this one, Star Trek is supposed to be set in an enlightened future where there's no discrimination, yet there's not one gay person on... Well, there's a gay actor on the Starship Enterprise, but no gay characters. And I've always found that quite strange. You would imagine that the, that you could not have a story set in the future without there being gay marriage equality. Mm. And there's been more of that turning up in situation lately, but still underrepresented, I think. Yeah, and we do want to really get into queer representation in books and literature, or the lack of it. But I think before we do that, we might take a very short break. We appreciate like you mob and all the people coming and visit us and doing stuff like this. You know, it's very good. It keeps a positive mindset in our mind, you know, and we really appreciate it. Because of where we can, yeah, I want to be a better, better man, yeah, because of where we can. Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison project, giving voice to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates across Victoria. You can listen to audio from this year and previous years online anytime. How do you rehabilitate someone? They just put you in a cell and tell you this is how long you're going to do and it's meant to rehabilitate you, you know. Rehabilitation starts when you get out. That's when your life begins again, doesn't it? In here, your life's on hold. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. Or if you'd like us to post you a free CD, contact the station on 03-9419-8377. When I first come to this day, I was about 10 years ago and I was a young one. I hope the young ones come off the truck there the other day and they call me Auntie Marlene. So it helped me recognise and realise that like, pull myself up like, yeah. They're starting to look up to me, so I've got to represent and do the right thing now. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. 
You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. We are currently chatting to the incredible Claire Coleman about all things queer and writing. Claire, let's talk about queer representation in writing yep. and literature. Firstly, why is this representation important? Well, I think in, in people get a lot of their culture from literature. Literature is the dominant way that people get art in Australia. Mm. Uh, 80% of people read books, but very, very few people... Um, for example, go to the opera. Mm. Um, people also watch TV a lot, and there's queer representation is increasing in TV and movies, but it's not increasing in literature quite as quickly. Mm. Uh, particularly in the re- literature I read, which is um, uh, science fiction, speculative fiction, mm. um, the more intelligent genre stuff is what I prefer. And it, it, just, it just does not come up much. And I think... Most people who are young and queer would probably have a lot better time in life if they could look at the media they like looking at and see themselves. And I'm, I'm, I don't just think see yourself because people do get to see themselves. There's also the issue of seeing themselves but not horribly. For mm-hmm. example, in movies and television and in books, if somebody dies horribly, generally it's the gay character. Mm. Because I suppose because the, the author wants someone to die. There's a classic thing in writing where you have a character die so you can show that the situation is dangerous. Mm-hmm. But they always make it the gay character who dies. Mm-hmm. Or the gay couple who dies. Or the gay couple have a whole breakup. Or the, or the gay character is really fucked up. There's always, mm-hmm. pardon my swearing, can't help it. <laughs> the gay character is always really um, emotionally screwed up. So the issue is, why can't we have stories where, the, where all the queer characters end up happy at the end? Mm-hmm. Why don't they exist? I remember years ago watching, there was a queer movie night at my university, at um, La Trobe, mm. was there, and um, we struggled to find a queer movie where everyone survived. Mm. They just don't exist. Mm. There's a couple, but there's, it's very rare. Mm. So I think it's very important to have, um, have um, media, books, Comic books, TV movies where there's happy gay characters, or mm. que- happy queer characters, happy trans characters. Yeah, and it really feeds into this narrative of queer people not having a happy life and, and you know, a hopelessness that they have to look forward to, which is, which is quite damaging, um, of course. And how, I guess, that also means that, do you sometimes feel the pressure to, or responsibility to write queer characters that are more layered because of who you are, because you have the a viewpoint that's, you know, slightly different. I feel the pressure to write all characters a bit more mm. nuanced and layered than normal mm. in, in literature, mainly because in my, from a, a like, strongly intersectional background, I, th- I think it's difficult, the idea of, of not writing any character from a nuanced mm. point of view, yeah. it's just, it would be just weird because... It's not like I can do the, the white, straight, cis, old male thing and go, well, I'm the default and everyone else can, can just put up with all being, all looking like me or being a cardboard, cardboard cutout. Because if I do a cardboard cutout of a character from a different background, I'm basically doing a cardboard cutout of myself. And mm. who wants to do that? So it's not, it's not like I make a conscious decision to write more diverse characters. Mm. It's, it's that, um, I understand diverse characters more than, than the average character, and normally if I use an average character, it's done with intent rather than doing the best character's intent. I do average, average white guy, old people, old men, normally because that is 
that character is needed to make a point about old, white, mm. straight, cis men. Mm. And how do we, for the young writers out there, how do we write better um, queer characters, but maybe even characters generally? I think it's important to love your characters, every character, even the, even the villains. Mm. And in order to do that, every character needs to be, in your understanding of them at least, a person more than their diversity background. So you're writing a queer character. Don't make them a queer character. Make them a person who's queer. Mm. Because everybody, no matter what their diverse background, they're a person first. It, person is the very first thing that we all are. Mm. And I think even if you're writing alien characters, making them more person-like um, makes them make more sense in our heads anyway. So mm. I think ha- ha- starting from the idea of everyone being people is mm. a good place to start. Yeah, that seems to be a really strong theme so far in, in today's show about how every queer person is a person first. And yeah, I think that's really important to recognise. Now, do you have any favourite queer authors or works about queer people that you'd like to share with us? Well, um, Ella Van already been mentioned. Mm. Uh, I love her poetry. It's fantastic. Omar Saker, his, mm. his poetry is absolutely incredible. Mm. In queer um, literature and fiction, there's just not enough of it to, to grab hold of someone as, as um, a favourite. Um, it's actually really hard. I'm, I'm racking my brain right now, and except mm. for thinking of, of Ellen and Omar, who are both my friends, I can't really think of that many queer writers. I mean, it te- um, in like I haven't read the book yet, but the TV show of the Family Law mm. was spectacular, particularly the third season, which was um, beautiful and heartbreaking and powerful um, understanding of of the process of coming to terms with sexual identity. Mm. That was spectacularly well written. So, yeah. and I think we can't just focus it when when writers talk about writing. I think these days it's foolish to think about using only literature as their influences anyway, because mm. everybody watches TV. Yeah. I watch TV. I, I think the idea of writers just being a little bubble and not watching TV or movies ever is just silly. It's a little bit <laughs> absurd, isn't it? Yeah, that reminds me that I have to catch up on the family law. If not for the fact that it drives Lyle Shelton mad, it's great. Everything drives Lyle Shelton mad. That's true. That's true. Um, thank you so much for joining us today, Claire. That's all the time we have, unfortunately. No Thank you. I am sailing, I am sailing on the seas to water. We sail for human rights, indigenous sovereignty and climate justice. Our destination is Manus Island. Join us for the Freedom Flotilla. Sailforjustice.org. Get on board. A 3CR supporter. The Setting Sun Film Festival is calling for entries for their festival at Sun Theatre Yarraval from May 2nd to May 9th, 2019. Organisers are looking for short films and features that tell a great story, amuse, entertain, inform and wow. All genres are welcome and submissions are due by the 31st of January. For more details about the 2019 Setting Sun Film Festival, head to settingsun.com.au, a 3CR supporter.
Selling Kofia Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black, or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. Welcome back to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. <laughs> Goodness, I put the wrong mic on. It's only been that kind of morning. Um, welcome back to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. Um, you're joining us for episode four of Summer School, Sexuality and Gender. I can't believe it's been four weeks. I know. Mm. Actually, I was thinking this morning as I was sleepily brushing my hair, I just wanted to say thank you to all of the people who've listened and given us such great such feedback. Such good feedback, I think yeah. a lot of people seem to be learning heaps from our amazing guests, and I have learnt so much as well. Mm. Um, so thanks to everyone who's listening, and thank you so much to all our guests. And also text us, yeah? Our number is 0488098855. To be honest, we've never received a text. I know. So, so please. That, really make it. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes it feels like we're talking to a void, you know? So text us. But weirdly, how funny was nice. it on the weekend? Um, I swear we were introduced to so many people, mm. just, you know, we were all spending time with community, and so many people were like, oh, yeah, we've heard your program. It was really... It's really nice. It was beautiful, and it was uh, it was good feedback because they they talked about how they didn't understand a lot of these complex terminology, mm. and having some record down before going on to the next step was was exactly what we were hoping to do. Yeah, um, and it's good that it's you know getting out there. Um, but text us, please. <laughs> <laughs> Not to be desperate or anything. <laughs> oh goodness. Mm. Um, so we were just having a chat in the break about. Um, I guess there's been a lot of stuff happening around, um, well, around sexuality, mm. but actually in, in Melbourne especially recently, um, and we were reflecting on Midsummer, which was not last week, the week before. How That's right, yeah. yeah. And the march is this um, set Sunday? This Sunday, I think, mm. the Pride March. So it's been a whole month of really incredible performances and... And yeah, carnivals in, in the March this, this weekend, which would be really nice. Um, so we encourage people to get involved. Mm. I was having an interesting chat with someone on Saturday, speaking of Midsummer, mm. um, about... So one of the post-Midsummer events was held at a jail, Yeah. right? Mm. And um, this really lovely woman was saying, oh, I think that's kind of cool because it's like, you know... Um, trying to bridge gaps and like isn't it nice that you know the state is reaching out mm. to to queers to kind of um yeah I don't know make amends or something um and I I don't know I I mean I gave her my thoughts about it um but I'd be interested to hear like what do you guys think about that I think it's extremely inappropriate yeah and also just 
it's not something anyone that has been in touch with the prison system or has known people that have been in touch or anyone from vulnerable communities that you know are more likely to be incarcerated I don't think that'd be a funny enjoyable experience at all and it doesn't seem sensitive at all to to those people's experiences totally Mm -hmm. yeah and and it's not as if queer people are still not um incredibly criminalized and penalized by the system anyway Mm. um you know trans women are most um harmed in this in this prison and, and carceral system and i think sometimes the queer community throws those people under the bus by Absolutely. holding these events and it's you know it's meant to be one big supportive happy family but there are you know different different types of people in that community who get thrown under the bus all the time like during the magical debate mm. you know, the don't worry your boy wouldn't be seen wearing a dress sort of you yeah. know in rhetoric like what's wrong with a boy wearing a dress mm. was was what we should have said at that yes. point and it didn't happen because of various campaign objectives or whatever but to continue that in this manner is um extremely harmful mm. absolutely and should be called out yeah the yeah. summer's great it's it's a time for everyone to come together and appreciate and enjoy their queerness all that is fine but but it's also the time to reflect on what as a community we should be doing mm. After that chat, because you were there, you were mm, present for this. Yeah. After that, I, I was sort of wondering, I wonder who actually organises Midsummer? Because mm. we sort of made the assumption based on the effects of the day yeah. that it was um, white cis gay men, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, that's been the history. Mm. And, yeah. and, and they have been trying... It does seem like they have been making quite a quite an effort to change that, but it still has that branding. And I think for a lot of younger queers, it has... And this is another example of that. It has a lot of work to do to demonstrate that it is a festival that is for, you know, a more sort of broader broader members of the community mm-hmm. that aren't just, you know, what you described. Totally, yeah. yeah. So I would be interested to know, yeah, how that's how that's going if mm-hmm. in diversifying the organisers and that sort mm-hmm. of thing. Like, is it... Mm. And the corporate pink washing that happens... All the time. Oh, God. I know I used the phrase pink washing on Saturday and I was like, oh my God, it sounds like I'm in a bloody classroom right now. But to be honest, that was midsummer. Maybe let's like, talk about what pink washing is. Yeah. yeah. Never heard that term yeah. before. So, well, in the, in the context of midsummer, I guess, which is as good as any, um, walking through where all of the stalls were and that sort of thing, mm. it was like the intersection of capitalism and gay pride exploding in like pink, mm. basically. Like it was just, um, it was organisations, well, the non-government organisations and the, you know, the queer health services and that sort of thing is very different. But I'm talking about companies there who were using queer pride, essentially, as a branding and marketing tool. To, to push their business. Absolutely, to yeah. push their business and to kind of um, to make their company look more progressive mm. and more, you know, more thoughtful, all of that sort of thing. Mm. Um, but what we were talking about on Saturday was to, um, I won't say who the company was, but we were talking about a particular private health insurance provider who um, the person we were talking to was saying, oh, but they, you know, they were so big in the marriage equality Mm. debate and, you know, they're all about pride and they love rainbow flags. And I was like, yeah, like, but to do all of that and then not to, for example, offer discounted medical care for Mm. people who are medically transitioning Mm. is to not address the issues that the community you're purporting to love and support mm. and present mm. um, it doesn't address the issues that they're facing yeah. but it makes you look really good yeah so pink washing is essentially that uh, appropriating a culture to yeah 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 and i agree i mean even 
I think this is something that Jamie and I were talking about, so I, I might not get the, the specifics right, but um, they were talking about how, you know, gender-affirming surgery is, is a bit of a, a loophole that they have to navigate because a lot of insurance companies um, consider uh, being trans as a pre-existing condition, so they have to wait for a year after signing on to private health insurance to be able to afford that surgery, which is kind of legislation that hasn't really been looked at in Australia. Even the U.S. has, has you know, dealt mm-hmm. with it, but we haven't. So these are actual issues that these companies and banks and whatever can, can look towards and change if they really care about queer exactly. people yeah. instead of turning up at carnivals waving the rainbow flag, mm. which, yeah. you know... Yeah, that's pink washing, basically. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I guess it seems like something that happens time and time again, where movements get sort of co-opted by capitalism and by corporations to suit their own agendas, and it's something to definitely be wary of. Yeah. And whether you're just supporting that kind of more surface-level engagement with an issue, or you're actually thinking about it in a broader way and how do issues connect. Yeah, absolutely. So our next guest has just arrived at the studio, so we're going to jump to a community service announcement while we go and collect her from the door, and we'll be right back. We're back on 3CR Tuesday Breakfast, uh, Summer School, Episode 4, Sexuality and Gender. We are joined live in the studio now by Rouge Ahmedi, who is a queer Kurdish woman. Born in Baghdad, Rouge came to Australia as a refugee, and she's currently the Senior Human Rights and Racial Justice Campaigner at Colour Code and Get Up. Her work is currently focused on coordinating an independent and national racial justice movement with First Nations people and people of colour, and we are very delighted to have her in the studio. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Um, I was very, very thrilled when you reached out and said, I love summer school. And I was like, my God, this is like, what a dream. Because um, you are the perfect mix, I think, of on-ground activism and kind of that intellectual, the way that you write and speak at that higher academic level is phenomenal to me. Um, but I love how you always manage to break it down. So I hope that our guests take a lot out of what you've got for us today. Yeah, fingers crossed. <laughs> um, so I wanted to start with a bit of a kind of explainer of some terms that are thrown around a lot, um, especially, I find, in relation to um, queer relationships and queer dating. Um, So let's start with internalised racism. What is that as a phrase and sort of what does that mean in the context? Well, when we all grow up, we're heavily socialised, whether we, um, you know, whether we accept it, um, there's like an implicit bias that gets um, drilled into us. And even if we are a particular, you know, a minoritized identity, whether it's race, gender, ability, sexuality, um, uh, there is an element of that kind of external force because it's so powerful and it's like embedded in our literature and media, the way people talk to each other, the way people interact, um, the way that like even kids in school reflect the behaviors of their parents. Um, it really it affects and influences even the most like the people who are kind of living within the intersex of society. Um, and so what happens is that there's like a very insidious, there's a very plain way of how internalized racism 
um, uh, manifests. There's a way where you inadvertently, without even realizing, hold up certain people. Um, and Claire um, perfectly explained it, you know, the white cis um, men, cis meaning that whatever gender you were assigned at birth is the gender that, you know, uh, you think reflects yourself. Um, and oftentimes they have a lot of class privilege. Um, you start to inadvertently reinforce their power by uh, judging their opinions with much higher favor. Um, you allow these people, um, you know, like on like a racialized way, you allow white people to make mistakes, um, to falter, uh, to have um, to kind of. Um, you know, uh, frame themselves as victims. We saw Carrie Ann Kennelly yesterday on like morning television, um, with their wonderful thousands of audience of like couches and living rooms just watching on morning television. I feel like those are the only audience members out there. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, kind of framing herself as a victim while perpetuating like a falsehood that was, um, clearly, um, yeah, clearly racialized and demeaning and degrading to Aboriginal people, um, and weaponized people's experiences of sexual abuse as a way to denigrate mm. their community um, but it, you know you allow people like that with a lot of like structural power to get away with things and inadvertently you minimize yourself or you um, uh, quiet yourself down um, you try and take you try and take less space I always like I have this thing of when I always catch a family and I know they're from a refugee background because they're sitting on the train with by taking as little space possible even though they may have like three kids with them and they're incredibly worried and anxious about making too much noise or seeming to speak languages other than English and you can just like identify like mm. I, I know what that experience is um, so yeah internalized racism is affects you and affects your behavior and affects the way that you expect things of yourself but also it, it allows you to excuse other behaviors mm. um, the more insidious form of internalized racism and I've been really grappling with this especially in the activist space is the way that so I'm going to use like a few complex um, terminology but um, there is like for example this kind of need for people to take space or other people you know like um, you know we're constantly grappling with who is taking space like who is having their voice heard who's um, who's leading things and that's a really important conversation to have but in the really kind of like the nuanced way or like this liminal space between like our push for taking up space we've started to kind of laterally which is like to our own community start to police the way other people uh, step up and take up space or take risk or whatever mm. and so the, there's like this idea of like there's only one seat at the table or very very small space or a little bit of oxygen to speak up and so w this com this like um, mental uh, mental block of being like there's only this much space and so only a few of us can get ahead mm -hmm. um, and so in, in our 
attempt to try and like push for um, people who are kind of living within the intersections or may not get like the structural support or anything. We've started to police each other and prevent each other from mm. stepping up or making mistakes because we think that there's just not enough space for everyone to do it. Mm. Um, and so I think that that is kind of a more insidious form of internalized racism as well because we're kind of like having this oppression Olympics mm. against each other and um, it actually in in that way we excuse mistakes from people who you know are oftentimes the people that are are, are oppressors or are taking up a lo- you know taking up a lot of like structural power mm-hmm. and then policing each other and preventing each other from having the space to grow make mistakes mm-hmm. take a chance mm-hmm. you know um step up so those are kind of like the simple form of how internalized racism works and then the yeah. other way yeah and so that narrative i guess really gets well, it goes for deep. Yeah. 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 Um, and so that, I guess, that sort of structure and the way that that plays out, um, is that similar for um, internalised misogyny and internalised sexism? I think I think so. I think it's like internalised misogyny is like quite a terrifying. I feel like out of, if we go internalised racism, misogyny and homophobia, um, I feel like misogyny is like such a like complex thing, especially because we tend to think that um, misogyny like can only be perpetrated by men. Um, but when we actually look at gender as a complete spectrum and a holistic experience, um, it's so deeply embedded and so deeply um, racialized as well. And oftentimes I find that misogyny is just so... Um, tightly entwined with um, racism and the way that we um, the way that like for example when you kind of combine race and gender together the way that internalized misogyny that the way that white women for example police black women um, it, I'm going to use like pop culture references but even like Serena Williams mm-hmm. and how her femininity is policed um, how she's framed as an aggressor um, and um, and and no matter what she does and no matter how she presents herself and no matter how humble she is during loss, for example, mm-hmm. she's always framed as this kind of like uh, a monster that's deeply embedded in like uh, the um, white supremacist um, construct. Yeah. And internalized misogyny as well, when it's entwined with racism also is like, when you look at the history of, for example, women's health or gynecology, mm-hmm. like th- those developments in that health sector was were, were born out of um, dehumanizing black women and their bodies. Um, and internalized misogyny can also affect the way that we talk about reproductive rights. We always talk about abortion, but we actually don't talk about the flip side, which is the right for um, a person to have children and to keep those children. Um, but that is like, I find that like misogyny kind of uh, and sexism usually stops at that and is its one dimensional prism. But when you actually look at through the intersectional perspective, um, it's so deeply wound by racism. Absolutely. There's that whole interesting debate and another pop culture reference, which is it's good for summer school, but um, when The Handmaid's Tale came out yeah. and white women were horrified, absolutely horrified that something like this could ever even have been dreamed up and black women were saying, welcome mm-hmm. to our lives. Yeah. You know, and that, that complete cognitive dissonance between what it looks like to hate a woman 
who is white and then what it looks like to yeah, yeah. I remember I remember in year 12 I made this terrible film for media <laughs> um, uh, about Guantanamo Bay and I put like a really beautiful white blonde girl in like complete turmoil and orange and prison garb and stuff as a way to be like you know who is allowed victimhood Mm -hmm. but also it's a trap because ultimately you're serving the patriarchy so you will get chewed up by it but because the shining gleaming hope of white supremacy for white women is just so Mm -hmm. relentless like it's difficult to pull away but it's really important to pull away because our liberation is intertwined Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely um, and so I'm just conscious of time, so mm-hmm. we might move the questions around a little. Mm-hmm. Um, but as you've quite clearly alluded to, intersectionality is everywhere, and mm-hmm. people. Does everyone know wh- why intersectionality was developed? We did have an explainer on it. Okay, great. Um, did they talk about like how it was the automotive industry? That wow. that's where it came out of. Sorry, no. Okay, so it was. <laughs> it was a. Um, it, it was because, like, there was a um, discrimination case. I'm not quite sure. I think it was in General Motors, but a bunch of black women were like, we've been discriminated against in our, uh, in our work life, but we can't choose between gender or race. Like, it's intertwined. So, like, Kimberly Crenshaw developed this whole process, and it was centered on the black women and their experience of, like, discrimination in workplaces and in society, mm. and that's where it came out of, and now we misuse it, and we kind of like use it for like every type of experience and all that sort of stuff yeah yes Mm. um so then maybe i will rephrase that (laughs) um but in terms of intersecting Mm -hmm. i guess um privileges or lack lack thereof exactly yeah Mm -hmm. overlapping um you know human beings aren't one thing um and they don't exist in a vacuum and and sexuality is is a part of who people are so that naturally doesn't exist in a vacuum um and so i'm interested in your thoughts on I guess if you could explain to our listeners what else can or does intersect and interact with people's sexuality and make their experiences of things um, such as understanding their sexuality in the first place, coming out um, and living then in potentially non-heterosexual relationships or as a queer person in the world, how is that made more complex by other aspects of their identity? Yeah, there is like... uh, um you know, there is a complexity I always talk about, like for people of color, especially if they're in the diaspora. Um, and there is like a, wo- a wonderful thing, this two prong thing that happens. Mm-hmm. Firstly, most of the time, their home countries have been influenced by colonization. And you can see in India where they had the blasphemy laws that made sex um, between um, uh, uh, two men or two women blasphemous and that was introduced during British colonial rule when previously trans people and queer people were very much like widely acknowledged and accepted and part of um, you know part of society um, so you, you've got the experience of colonization that completely like quashes um, that kind of diversity mm. that you see throughout history and then when you when you leave your country there is this wonderful thing that happens which I have noticed in all of of my family that got dispersed all around the world because you just take any opportunity to get out of war when you can but um, you uh, you become more conservative because you hold on to elements of your culture that are most prominent, most mainstream, um, and that even when you're back at home and you were part of like the radical kind of progressive side of politics, you are, you are, you know, you're kind of dropped into a new context and you're kind of free falling and you've got this like, 
like f- experience of free falling anxiety and connection. And so you, the best bet that you can do is to connect with really like traditional prominent um, examples of your culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those two things make being queer a bit difficult because the most prominent elements of your culture can oftentimes be the conservative elements of your religion um, and uh, cultural practices. And so in a bit what I've seen um, in queer uh, people of color from the diaspora is that they cling to elements of their history. Again, they search back to their history, but they do the complete opposite and they find the historical references of like queer liberation and trans liberation in their cultures. But in that way, they erase the current experiences of oppression that queer and trans people are experiencing in their home countries. Mm. So by looking at themselves through this kind of ahistorical perspective and trying to self-actualize, because that's what we want, we want to be like... Uh, you know, our queerness is very, very much embedded with our identity and in, in, in our cultural identities, our religious identities. We've, we've kind of erased like the current experiences and we've, we've reached back into history again. And so we've like frozen in time. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's like, it's very difficult to then be like, I'm a, I'm, I'm a hybrid cultural, third cultural person. I've been influenced and my queerness has been influenced by multiple aspects, but also I'm connected to queer and trans people mm-hmm. in my home country right now and their mm-hmm. experiences are valid and actually their frustrations are valid and, um, and that I need to connect with that rather than like a historical precedent that, with, that no, like queer and trans people didn't stop existing during the time where colonial rule um, uh, tried to silence them. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, that, that's kind of like an interesting example of how when multiple identities mm-hmm. exist together, it, you know, we, we attempt to overcome them and by, overcome, by trying to overcome them we have these um, uh, consequences that we, we don't intend but we need to kind of grapple with and be honest with. Mm. You're on 3CR Tuesday Breakfast and we're speaking with Rouge Amedi. I'm interested then in, um, do you have advice for people who are finding themselves in that situation and are grappling with it? Um, is there some clear way forward to... I think um, uh, I think uh, embracing the multitude that you are is really important. Mm-hmm. That there's going to be a complexity and it's messy and you're going to be a contradiction and that's really great. And that, you know, and uh, it's, it's a consequence of our globalized world and a peoples that have experienced imperialism and colonization. And, and that experience is totally valid. Mm-hmm. And that you're, um, and, and the perfect example of this actually is when people apply for refugee status in Australia um, because of uh, homophobia or transphobia. They have to fulfill these expectations or criteria that are very, very Western-centric. Mm-hmm. Um, so they have to know where the gay clubs are mm-hmm. and they have to dress in a certain way. They have to act in a certain way. Men have to be effeminate. Women have to be a bit more masculinized, all that sort of stuff. And that their application for safety and amnesty mm-hmm. is often embedded in that. And so so, um, and that's a really destructive thing and something that like a lot of queer um, uh, uh, people from refugee backgrounds are trying to grapple with and trying to get um, like human rights organizations to reframe and actually like focus on those issues. Mm-hmm. But, um, but in that sense, in the same way, our queerness is not going to be um, Western. Our queerness is 
um, uh, broader than that. And and to be queer is to also question every normative expectation and to feel comfortable in that in-between space and that you're not, you know, the, you don't have to feel a percentage. Like if you're pansexual or bisexual, you don't have to be like, I'm 50-50, um, uh, you know, that you can be attracted to your own gender and other genders and that there's kind of a sense of fluidity and to actually embrace that freedom mm. um, but also to take care of yourself yeah. that you don't have to fulfill any sense of expectation whether it is something that it, you identify as heteronormative or not I think that we're in a bit to kind of feel like real you um, you force yourself to do things that are outside of your comfort zone, but like to reinforce your boundaries and to not have to um, fulfill expectation on either end of the spectrum is really important. Um, you're valid just the way you are, and if you're surrounded by people who invalidate that, then um, then I think it's important to like step away, and that's really important for your safety. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and we are definitely running out of time, but I'm wondering if there are any writers or um, thinkers that you could recommend to our listeners if they're interested in learning more about what you've talked about. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Claire mentioned Ellen Van Nieven, who I love. Um, I've been reading Alison Whitaker, who's mm -hmm. a, um, a queer Aboriginal um, poet. And I've also been picking up Audre Lorde because her way of talking about being a lesbian, a black lesbian, and raising children and raising a daughter and a son is really important because mm -hmm. we never talk about queer families and we never talk about desire and she talks about desire and how um, desire should be central to the way that we are activists, that we move to liberation and that we also connect with other people and that's mm. important. Yeah, three wonderful, wonderful um, writers and thinkers there. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, Rouge, and um, we are almost out of time, but thank you to all our guests from this morning, Jamie Lim, Claire Coleman and Rouge. Um, next week, episode five of Summer School is Disability Week. Yes. Um, and we will see you back here at 7 a.m., 855 a.m. on your dial or www.3cr.org.au slash streaming.